The, um, one of the concepts that I want to uh, talk about a little bit today to get us uh, started, it's a, it's a notion that's called progressive revelation. Now, we all come from, you know, different kinds of theological backgrounds, but the, the notion, at least for the way that I approach these things, is that uh, God did not reveal everything about who he is and what he wants us to do all at one time. Now, we might, you know, step back and go, well, why not? Some things are just above our pay grade, uh, I think, frankly. <laughs> in fact, there's a lot of that going on in the book of Job, um, even in the topic that we'll consider today. Um, but And I'll, maybe I'll say something more about why perhaps uh, God did this uh, in this way uh, in a moment. But let me give you an, an, uh, an example of what I mean by progressive revelation. So you could take a very difficult topic like slavery. Okay, I had um, a, it was, it was one of the most painful conversations I've ever had in my entire life. Um, I, uh, I took a couple of missions trips to Ivory Coast, West Africa when uh, I was in college. The, the first one uh, by myself, or you know, not by myself, but with a, a group. Second one was after Michelle and I had gotten married. Um, and so uh, both trips were six weeks long. And uh, there's an interesting experience because um, when I was in high school, our church had sponsored a young man from Ivory Coast to come with our church to go to a big youth conference that our denomination had um, every three years. The, the, the conference was called Life, and it was, a, uh, it was a great thing. In fact, one of the things I got out of Life was my beloved wife. Um, we actually met at a, uh, although uh, she was attending a church in Tuscaloosa and uh, I was, uh, you know, attending a church in Birmingham, we met in Colorado um, at this uh, conference that was there. And after she asked me and asked me and asked me, I finally agreed to go out on a date with her. Um, see, I got another look. Um, but the, uh, uh, what was so interesting was I had nothing in common with this young man. Uh, he was a little bit older than I was. I think at the time I must have been uh, 16, uh, and he was probably about uh, 24 maybe. And uh, at the time, I did not speak a word of French, not, not a word. And he spoke hardly any English. And, and yet somehow we just, we just hit it off. Um, and we had a, a great time. It was a, it was a fun week. They're all sort of trying to teach someone how to play baseball when they're from an impoverished country that only has soccer. Um, and, and so we, we kind of simplified it as well as we could. If you get the ball, throw it to the, the person playing second base. One has to explain these things more clearly because when we're just kind of warming up in between innings, Somebody threw him the ball. He rifled the ball at the girl playing second base who was not expecting a ball to come from right field. Uh, so it whizzed right past her head there. We, I tried to teach him how to swim. It did not work. Um, uh, but just the incongruity of my trying to teach this fellow how to swim, who did, we didn't speak the same language or anything like that. It was just, well, as it turned out, when I got to go uh, to Ivory Coast uh, a couple of years after that, I got to stay at his house. It was just a, an incredible experience. I had uh, taken some French by that time, and so I could muddle through. Um, and I, I, was, I was sitting there while uh, Eliezer and uh, one of his relatives were having a conversation. And it, 
it occurred to me as I'm trying to keep up with the conversation poorly that they were talking about slavery. And here, here I've got two Ivorians and me, white guy from Birmingham, and they're talking about slavery. And finally, they turned to me, and the question they asked was, does the Bible teach slavery? I had no answer to this. I didn't even have a bad answer to this. I, I tried to muddle through with something, but what made it so uncomfortable was where we were in Ivory Coast, I was maybe 50 miles from the port where all of the African slaves left. And they're asking me, Bible college student, does the Bible teach slavery? I didn't have a good answer. In fact, I don't think a lot of us still have a good answer to this. And it's one of these areas where progressive revelation actually bails us out to some degree. So here's what I mean by that. The Bible has multiple different law codes. So while, you know, traditionally we think of it as, you know, Moses delivers the entire Pentateuch and so forth, but, you know, scholars have, have, have sort of pushed back against that. Honestly, they started pushing back against that around the year 1100 uh, with a Jewish scholar whose name was Ibn Ezra, who uh, would point out a few things that was awfully difficult for Moses to have said. And now, of course, at that time, you couldn't really question it. So we go, of course, no one questions that Moses wrote all of this. Um, but that was his sort of covering for some of the things like, how does Moses write the account of his own death? You know, how, did, how does that one work? Moses, hey, uh, yes, sir. I, I, uh, yes, sir, I'm right here. I've got some more Torah for you to write. Oh, well, absolutely, Lord. I'm always, uh, you've got some papyrus right here. He says, and... And, the, and Moses went to the top of, of Mount Nebo, and God said, you can't enter there. And then he died at the word of the Lord. <laughs> Lord, you're <laughs> we, I'm going through a tunnel. I think uh, you're breaking up. Uh, next week, I'll <laughs> get you. Uh, how does Moses write this? You know, the account of his own death. And there's, there's a lot of, you know, little parts like that. Well, eventually, you know, modern scholarship looked at it and said, that Moses may be the center and, and founder of the Torah, but he's the center and founder in the same way that Webster is the, the founder of Webster's Dictionary. But you can look in Webster's Dictionary and find the word Jedi. And it's not because, you know, Webster looked forward into the future and saw that one day there would be a Star Wars trilogy or however many they've got now. Um, it's because he founded it, but other people continued to add to it. And that's my view of the Torah. Well, the law codes in the Bible, they come from different periods of time. And thank God they do. Because you can look, for example, if you were to look at Exodus 21, you would see that it says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, that Hebrew slave is supposed to work for you for six years, and in the seventh year they go free without debt. Well, while that guy's a slave, what if, uh, well, what if he comes in and he's married? No problem. At the end, he goes out married. What if he comes in single? No problem. At the end, he, comes out, he goes out single. What if his master gives him a wife and she bears sons and daughters? To whom do the sons and daughters belong? Are, are they his because of the marriage or the master's because he gave them to? In that text, they belong to the master. He goes out, they stay. Well, what if he loves the wife and the, and the kids and so forth? Then he can stay. What he has to do is agree to become a slave permanently. 
And so they take an awl and they pierce his ear and he becomes a slave permanently. Now, some of you, I think I probably have some lawyers in the room. Those of you who aren't doctors are lawyers, right? Um, and so the lawyers in here, I, I usually ask my, my students, I say, okay, surely we can get this guy out of this. And some of them, they, they think through it. And finally, they come on the answer, well, just wait until the wife gets to go out when her seven years are up. You know, the, I mean, you know, surely didn't marry her like right at the beginning or, or you know, a, too late. It, you just have to wait a little while and then she can get out too and, and then you can, you can stay married. It says, the women don't go out as the male slaves do. So she's not leaving. So if you want to stay married to her, you're going to have to stay permanently. Now, if you were to flip over to the book of Deuteronomy, instead of that first uh, passage there in Exodus tw uh, uh, 21, you see it's the same law, but it has been modified. It follows the same structure. It quotes from it. You can tell that the author of the Deuteronomic law code is revising the covenant code in Exodus chapter 21. And the way that you can tell this is if, you know, you buy a, a, a Hebrew slave, then uh, he shall work for you seven years uh, or six years at the end of that, he'll go free. And then it starts saying, and when you let this, uh, this slave go, it's not just the debts canceled. You shall provide liberally from your grain and your wine and your flock. And you go, wait a minute, this clown, he only went into slavery because he owes me money. He hasn't paid off the entire debt, and yet I have to, to give him stuff to get going. And it says, remember, you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord set you free. In other words, if, if God can be kind to you and set you free and give you stuff in the process, well, then you can do the same thing. And then it says, you shall do the same for your female slave. You can tell they're revising this law. Now, it, it, in the first instance, the reason why the, uh, the guy stayed was because he wanted to stay with the wife there. Well, that's not an issue anymore. This time, why might he want to stay? Maybe it's because he says, I love my master and I'm doing well with him. In other words, maybe this poor guy, I mean, the whole reason he went into slavery was because of, of debt slavery. So in other words, he was an absolute screw-up when he was on his own. He couldn't, you know, manage things, and so he got so deeply into debt he had to sell himself into slavery. Suddenly, he's working for this guy. He's going, this is actually pretty good. I, I, I'm thriving. I've got steady pay. Everything's good. I, I think I would rather just stay in this person's employ than to be back on my own. And so it's a voluntary thing. And then at the end, just to underscore it one more time, it says as the last line, you shall do the same with regard to your female slave. They're revising it. You get to Leviticus 25, it says, I don't want them taken in as slaves. Treat them as hired workers. You get to the book of Philemon, and you have an escaped slave, and Paul writes back and he says, I don't want him taken back as a slave, take him back as a brother. In other words... Progressive revelation would say, does the Bible teach slavery? Well, the Bible teaches about slavery, but what it does from start to finish is to increasingly underscore the notion that slavery is incompatible with human dignity. In other words, it sets a trajectory that starts off in one place 
and then civilizes it, and then civilizes it, and civilizes it to the point eventually where it's saying, this is not right, don't do it. And Christianity, on multiple different occasions in human history, tried to get rid of slavery, and they did it based on the Bible's teaching. And so they would do it, and then it would, it, but the problem is, slavery is the natural condition of humanity, and so you're pushing up against something that's very difficult, and it took multiple attempts for us to finally outlaw this terrible practice. Now, you might say, well, well, why didn't God just come right in at the very beginning and just say, slavery's outlawed? And that's fine, but it's one of these things that there... Imagine if God came down and said, henceforth, you are forbidden to use money. Okay, how's that work? when you leave this room today. Or if it says, henceforth, you may no longer use anything from the animal or plant world. Okay, what's that look like when you walk out of here? In other words, it's, it's certain things, they're so ingrained that how exactly do you do it practically? It may be that it takes us a while to be led along a path from where our sort of natural condition is to where we ought to be. Well, it's not just in the realm of ethics that this happens. We've already seen when we were talking about the Satan earlier um, in uh, this series that uh, the Bible doesn't start off with the notion of monotheism. That where it starts off is the idea of called henotheism. And henotheism says, well, yeah, I mean, there's, there's other gods that are out there, but this is the God for us. And so, for example, this is uh, Exodus 15. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in splendor, doing wonders? There's other gods out there. It's just there's no God like you, Lord. Or this is Psalm 95. The Lord is a great God. You notice already that there's a problem when you use an adjective like that? It's like when I say to my, my sons, I am the best father you have. <laughs> and what's their response? <laughs> well, you're the only father that we have. So technically, I'm the worst. I'm the tallest. I'm the shortest. I'm the, you know, you could go on from there. If God's the only God, what does it mean to say you are a great God and a great king above all gods? In other words, it doesn't really wrestle with the idea that there are other gods out there, but it says, you're the highest of the gods, you're the God that we serve. Over time, they're going to move away from this notion. They will move away from the notion that there are other gods out there and God is the highest or God is the one from us or for us, and they will say, there's just one God. And th that pivotal moment, we actually talked about it, is that moment with Elijah. See, all of the people in the north, they're wanting to worship the God of the thunderstorm because they need rain. And, and Baal's the best God. I mean, he, he sends rain. He doesn't ask for much. There are no ethical requirements to worship Baal. You can do what you want to as long as you send him sacrifices. He's, he's the perfect God. I mean, there's a lot of Baal worship going on today. Um, you know, it's like, I'm a spiritual person, you know, and aren't I doing you a favor, God? Uh, so send me good stuff. Um, the, uh, that's the way Baal worship kind of works. And Elijah finally says, no, this is not the way that this works. And so his first act as prophet is to say, no more rain until I say so. In other words, God of the thunderstorm, we're going to put that one to the test. And it doesn't rain for three and a half years. 
So there, there's no rain. It really puts the lie to the idea that, uh, that Baal is a god at all. And they finally have that contest. Remember when they go up on the top of Mount Carmel there? And the, and the contest is who can light the altar? It's a home game for Baal. They go up on a mountain, Baal lives in the clouds. They go by the Mediterranean, Baal lives over the sea. And Baal's famous for thunder and lightning. All you got to do is light an altar on fire. This is, as my, my, my perennial joke with this one is, we are not asking Shaq to hit free throws. We're putting a stool under the basket and saying, can you dunk the ball? That's all you got to do, and yet he doesn't do anything, as we know. It's only uh, Jehovah who lights it. But it's the line at the beginning of the contest that's so important. 1 Kings 18, Elijah came near all the people and said, How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. It's one of the most important lines in the whole Bible. Because it doesn't say, if Jehovah is stronger, follow him. If Baal is stronger, follow him. Implicit in his, his statement, if the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him, is there can only be one. It may be Jehovah, it may be Baal, but there's only one God. Whichever one proves to be God, serve him and abandon the foolishness of this other God. From this point, monotheism just takes off in Israel. Some of the language that we find from this point forward is just it's so majestic. First uh, Kings 8, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or earth beneath, keeping covenant and steadfast love for your servants. Psalm 113 is my, my, one of my favorite psalms. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? It's this, this wonderful image of a God who actually has to stoop down to see that there are heavens and earth below. I mean, you start to, you, I mean, we know so much about, you know, scientifically the size of the universe and so forth. And maybe they didn't have quite that. But on the other hand, they understood the universe in a way that we don't. Because for them, every night was that rare night that you've had when you were out in the country and you looked up and you, you were outside long enough that the, the, the Milky Way of stars was, was so uh, vivid that you started to lose your constellations because you couldn't pick out the one star from the other. They had that every night. And so there they are with that vast sea of stars. And what kind of God do we have? A God who has to stoop down to be able to actually... Oh, Gabriel, check this out. Look at... There is a universe down there. Do you, do you see that? You know, it's, a, it's that kind of image of God. No, no, nobody else in the ancient world thinks of God in those terms. Isaiah chapter 40, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and spreads them like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and makes the rulers of the earth as nothing. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them. And they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? 
says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these, who brings out their host and numbers them, calling them all by name, because he is great in strength, mighty in power, not one is missing. This, this kind of glorious language that informs our faith, this, it, it takes off from that moment when Elijah has this monotheistic revelation that says that there's only one God. That if the idea of progressive revelation is, is tricky for you, you need only think about Old Testament and New Testament. I doubt seriously that many of you lately have done a sacrifice. You, you weren't even looking for whatever Hoppy the Goat was, you know, uh, that was uh, running around Mountain Brook so you could get a freebie and get a sacrifice that you didn't. And besides, that wouldn't have been right because, as David said, shall I offer a sacrifice that cost me nothing, right? It's, we, 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 don't, we don't do sacrifices anymore. And there's a word in the New Testament, the word mystery. Well, mystery just means hidden. And when they talk about some of the, the knowledge of God, they say it's a mystery. It was, these were things that were hidden that God has revealed lately. Things the prophets wished they could see, and yet God has revealed them to us. That's just the notion of progressive revelation. This idea of who God is hits its pinnacle when we hit the divine speeches in the book of Job. These are speeches I remember before I knew anything about the book of Job. Just reveling in some of these speeches. When you want to find just glorious language about God, you can certainly find it in Job. It's worth reading. Uh, Job chapter, all of the Bible's worth reading. Don't, I didn't mean to misspeak on, in that regard. But, you know, this is not the genealogies at the beginning of Chronicles here. Uh, this, 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 is, this is some of the greatest hits, uh, you know, kind of material. Job chapter 38, verse 1, The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Gird up your loins like a man, and I will question you, and you declare to me. Where were you? Boy, that's going to be quite the question, isn't it? Where were you? When I laid the foundation of the earth, see the, the speech that God is going to give, it's going to, it's going to be broken up into different sections, um, different sort of themes and topics here. And, and I want you to kind of, all right, so we think about this in two ways. One of the ways I want you to think about it is it's in one, it's just this uh, revelation of who God is. The other is it's a fascinating, if you kind of look at it sideways, indication of what ancient Israelites didn't understand about the world around them. So a lot of the questions that you're going to see in here, you'll actually go, well, yeah, we, we actually know that one. Because, you know, over time we've continued to study this and so forth. Not all of them, but it's a fascinating thing that tells you where they admit the boundaries of their scientific ignorance. They're just like, you know, we have boundaries ourselves that we look at and say, no, I don't understand how that works. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me. If you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy, who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness, 
its swaddling band and prescribed bounds for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stopped. It's that great language of God's uh, conflict with the sea that we always see there. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place so that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal. It is dyed like a garment. Light is withheld from the wicked and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness. Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this, it's glorious language. It moves on from the foundation of the earth, the creation of the earth. It begins to have a little section on meteorology in here. Where is the way to the dwelling of light? Where is the place of darkness that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home? Surely you know, for you were born then. There is a tone in this text. Have you, have you noticed that one? You know, just, just detect a little tone there. I, I, you know, under most circumstances, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm very, I'm, patience is my watchword, right, uh, Michelle? Um, but I, but I do, God, I, God bless me, uh, or as, as one of my students on my Israel trip this year would say, Bless my heart. Um, <laughs> when she would do something kind of silly was her term there. Bless my heart. I have a terrible temper. But usually what sets my temper off is just inanimate objects that will not submit to my will. There's a long list of machinery around our house that, uh, well, it has gone on to meet Jesus um, because it, it finally just, it was a VCR that, that ate one too many tapes. There was a bicycle pump that would not come off of a bicycle, and the bicycle went airborne, and my, my son didn't understand why. There, those sorts of things there. But the other one that really gets me is, man, I just cannot abide being smarted off to. Um, when my, my students, I, mean, I love them, they love me. I mean, I'm totes adorbs, um, as the cool kids say. That's, that's short for totally adorable. Um, and, so, and so they love me, but... But boy, if they ever smart off to me, I mean, I go from a zero to a 15 on a scale of 10 just instantly. It's almost like, I mean, it is as instantaneous for me as if I like burn my hand on a stove. It's that kind of reaction there. And so when, when somebody takes a tone, <laughs> yes, ma'am. <laughs> um, gosh, you know, I... I try to suppress those memories in my mind there. Um, when did somebody smart off to me? I, I, I can't think of one. I, I can think of the moments. I can't remember what they said. But I, I remember Nick sitting right back there in the classroom who mouthed off to me. And like, Out. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. My sons, mercifully, they didn't have my personality, and so they didn't smart off to me because I, I, was, I was not a good kid. Um, and so my mom has the, the patience of Job to have put up with me. My sons just didn't do it because um, if they did, they knew. A volcano of anger would come back at them. So just there's, there's just little, you know, I mean, it's only happened like twice, um, you know, in, in my, my, my 29 years. You watch it back there. <laughs> 
One will come to me in a minute. I, I'm pretty good at detecting a tone. God's got a tone in, in this particular passage um, with these surely you knows and so forth. Have you entered the, snow uh, the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cut a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no one lives, on the desert which is empty of human life, to satisfy the waste and desolate land, to make the ground put forth grass. Has the rain a father? Who has begotten the drops of the dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the hoarfrost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. So we, we've had our meteorology, so now we get a bit of astronomy. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Mazarot in their season? Can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heaven? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings so that they may go and say to you, here we are? All of these kinds of lines here about the world around us. And then what's interesting is he's, he's actually going to start to deal with uh, the creatures in the, in the world around us. And he, he does it in a couple of pairs. The, the first two pair, or first pair, I should say, are lions and ravens. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their covert? Who provides for the raven its prey when the young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? The, the next one is it's the pair of mountain goats and deer. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you number the months that they fulfill? Do you know the time when they give birth? See, that's actually one of those where it's like, well, yeah, I know that one. David Attenborough, he, I mean, he told me when they, we do sort of, you know, uh, know, I mean, right now, you know, Marlon Perkins is sending Jim to go and, and figure out when the calving takes place. Um, when they crouch to give birth to their offspring and are delivered of their young, their, you know, my students, if I were to say Marlon Perkins and Jim, just, it would not have the faintest idea what I was talking about. Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go forth and do not return. The, the next is the, the wild ass and the wild ox. Who has let the wild ass go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift ass to which I have given the step for its home, the salt land for its dwelling place? It scorns the tumult of the city. It doesn't hear the shouts of the driver. It reached, I, I think of, uh, you know, uh, what was his name, uh, with number seven. Remember on uh, Grizzly Adams and how the, the, the mule that wouldn't go was number seven because the first six had been so stubborn he had gotten rid of them. Um, and, uh, and so here you've got the wild one here. It doesn't have to listen uh, to the shouts of the driver. It ranges the mountains as its pasture and searches after every green thing. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will it spend the night at your crib? 
Can you tie it in the furrow with ropes? Will it harrow the valleys after you? You can't tame this one. He's not going to help you plow the field. I love pair four, the ostrich and the horse. It's my favorite part of the whole thing. The ostrich's wings flap wildly, though its pinions lack plumage. For it leaves its eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them, that a wild animal may trample them. It deals cruelly with its young, as if they were not its own. Though its labor should be in vain, yet it has no fear. (laughs) I love this. God has made it forget wisdom and given it no share in understanding. I have a few students that I should point that one to. God has made it forget wisdom and given it no share in understanding, but when it spreads its plumes aloft, it laughs at the horse and its rider. That's a great line. I had a couple of uh, athletes when uh, I taught high school that I really thought this one applied to. God has given them no share of wisdom, but man, when they run. They put to shame horse and rider. Do you give the horse its might? By the way, if you've seen the movie uh, Secretariat, um, the, uh, when Diane Lane is talking about Secretariat in that wonderful uh, you know, passage when it's, it's running, this is uh, where she gets that from. Do you give the horse its might? Do you clothe its neck with mane? Do you make it leap like the locust? Its majestic snorting is terrible. It paws violently, exalts mightily. It goes out to meet the weapons. It laughs at fear and is not dismayed. It does not turn back from the sword. Upon it rattle the quiver, the flashing spear and the javelin. With fierceness and rage, it swallows the ground. It cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, it says, Aha! From a distance, it smells the battle, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. These are majestic passages here. But what is it that has finally provoked God to respond? God last spoke in chapter 2, I think chapter 2, verse 6, somewhere back there. And for the course of 36 chapters was content to be silent, no matter what the friend said, no matter what Job said. What is it that has finally provoked God to respond? Well, we've come to the end of the speeches, seemingly. We've had our dialogue back and forth with Job and the friends and Job and the friends and Job and the friends. We even had Eli, or Elihu, who has just gone talking and talking and talking and never saying anything. It's certainly not going to be Elihu that makes God respond. It's going to be Job. Job is going to finally, well, in one sense, he's going to kind of back God into a corner. It's a a wonderful set of passages. I I wish we had time to go through the whole thing. Uh, Job 29 is this this incredibly uh, moving section where he uh, looks back at the way life used to be. Uh, there's a, a particular place in Israel where I like to talk about this. We, we go to the gate at Tel Dan and talk about what life was like. You know, they didn't have the regular court system. When you had a problem, you went to the city gate. And that was where the elders would hear your case. And, and Job talks about, oh, I remember when. 
I would come in and, and I, the, the young men would get up and, oh, please, Job, sit here. And the old men, they would rise up and, oh, Job, please. And I would sit there and if I spoke, everyone would put their hand over their mouths. They did not want to interrupt me. Those were the days, but not now. Now those people make fun of me. And Job finally comes to his ultimatum of innocence. This is in chapter 31. I want you to notice all of the ifs in this passage because it's important for what Job is doing. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I look upon a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Does not calamity befall the unrighteous? And disaster the workers of iniquity? Doesn't he see my ways and number all my steps? If I have walked with falsehood and my foot has hurried to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has followed my eyes and if any spot has clung to my hands... Then let me sow and another eat. Let what grows for me be rooted out. Do you see what he's doing? He's issuing a series of what we would call self-curses. Now you've heard of these before. So this would be sort of the thing like Jezebel does with Elijah. May the Lord do so to me and more also if I don't kill you by the end of this day. Right? That's, it's a self-curse. That's being offered. Job is going to offer a chapter of self curses. Verse 9 If my heart has been enticed by a woman and I have lain in wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind for another and let other men kneel over here. For that would be a heinous crime. That would be a criminal fence. That would be a fire consuming down to destruction. It would burn to the root of all my harvest. If I have rejected the cause of my male or female slaves when they brought a complaint against me. What then shall I do when God rises up, when he makes inquiry? What shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? And did not one fashion us in the womb? If I have withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or eaten my morsel alone, and the orphan has not eaten with it. From, uh, for from my youth I reared the orphan like a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or a poor person without covering, whose loins have not blessed me, and who was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the orphan, because I had supporters at the gate. See, that's our, our gate language there. In other words, if I took advantage of somebody because I had the numbers on my side, because they were on my team, God curse me. Let my shoulder fall from my socket. My arm be broken. For I was in terror of calamity from God, and I could not have faced his majesty. If I have made gold my trust... Or called fine gold my confidence. If I have rejoiced 
because my wealth was great or because my hand had gotten much. If I had looked at the sun when it shone or the moon moving in splendor and my heart has been secretly enticed. In other words, to idol worship, to worship the, the sun or the moon. If I have rejoiced at the ruin of those who hated me, if, I, if those of my tent ever said, oh, that we might be sated with his flesh, the stranger has not lodged in the street, I have opened my doors to the traveler. If I have concealed my transgressions as others do by hiding iniquity in my bosom, he says, oh, that I had someone to hear me. Here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer Oh, that I had the indictment written by my adversary. In other words, he wants discovery. <laughs> what, what's, what's the charge? You, we, I want to see the transcript from the grand jury. It, if you're going to, to punish me in this way, then let me see the charges at least. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would bind it on me like a crown. I would give him an account of all my steps. Like a prince, I would approach him. If my land has cried out against me and its furrows have wept together, if I have eaten its yields without payment and caused the death of its owners, let thorns grow instead of wheat and foul weeds instead of barley. The words of Job are ended. With this self-curse, God has... What he has, or I'm sorry, Job has created a, a sort of untenable situation for God. Because if you think about the, the way that these self-curses are supposed to work, what you're saying is, if I've done this, then let God enact the, the consequences. You remember when uh, Isaac is going to bless Jacob and Esau? There's this idea that the, the patriarch's words are effective because God is there to stand behind them. And so, you, you, I mean, you remember how the story goes, right? That, that here uh, Isaac loves Esau, uh, Rachel, I'm sorry, uh, Rebecca loves Jacob. And so Isaac wants to bless Esau. So he goes and, you know, go out and get me some of that tasty game like I like and, like, and then I'll, I'll bless you. And so uh, Rebecca gets Jacob to dress up as if he were Esau. And so he comes in there and, and uh, you know, Isaac is suspicious, but eventually he eats the food, he drinks the wine, and then he blesses him. But see, it's not just a blessing for Esau. It's a curse for Jacob. So when he says, oh, have, you know, may, the, may the, the ground opened up its bounty to you. May the, the earth give all of its you know, wonderful produce to you. May you rule over your brothers. See, he, he's not just blessing Esau. He's cursing Jacob. But it, it wasn't Esau. It was Jacob. And so now Jacob will reap the harvest and Esau is the one who will be cursed. And poor Esau comes in. You didn't have to feel sorry for him. He comes in. And uh, when, he, he, when Isaac says, well, who are you? And he says, I'm, I'm Esau, your son. And he says, Isaac trembled violently because Isaac knew exactly what he had done. He knew that it wasn't just a blessing, but it was a curse. Have you no blessing left for me? No, there's nothing left. Because I've already blessed your brother here. The words of the patriarchs go into effect because God stands behind them to effect them. So how does that work with Job? If Job has done the things that he has enumerated, God is obligated to punish him. But if that's the case, 
God has lost the bet with the Satan, hasn't he? And Job is not upright, blameless, fierce. God turns away from evil. He's a wicked person who deserves the punishment. But on the other hand, if Job has not done these things, then God will be shown to be punishing him unjustly. And so now, in a word, God is stuck. And so he speaks out in the divine speeches. Now, I hate, oh, I just hate to leave y'all with cliffhangers. But I'm going to. See, the problem is, God doesn't really address the issue, does he? I mean, God d delivers all kinds of, of, of outstanding discussions about meteorology and astronomy and wild animals and so forth. And we can learn some things about God from those. I mean, God is powerful. God's ways are higher than our, our ways. God's in control. God knows stuff that we don't know. But then Job never questioned any of those things, did he? Job never questioned God's greatness. What he's questioning is God's goodness. What he's questioning is God's justice. And God never gets within a million miles of talking about his justice in here. Humanity is essentially absent from the first divine speech. There are a couple of little side comments about this person or that person but you notice the things that God has talked about. <laughs> These are all things that have to do with stars and weather and wild animals, not with the ordering of human life. God has done to Job just what Job feared God would do to him. He says in chapter 9, How can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am innocent, I cannot answer him. I can only appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I don't believe he would listen to my voice. He crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He won't let me get my breath but fills me with bitterness. Verse 19, if it's a contest of strength, well, he's the strong one. If it's a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am innocent, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. A few verses later, he says, For he is not a mortal as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no umpire between us who might lay his hand on, his, uh, on us both. And, and so God concludes his speech by saying, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Anyone who argues with God must respond. And so Job gives in. He says, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I put my hand on my mouth I have spoken once and will not answer twice. Uh, I will not answer twice, but will proceed no further. What he says to God is, fine, I give. I give in. I, I, I was talking, but I'll shut up. Now, if that is what God wanted, 
it should move to the credits and the story should be over. This should be God's crowning moment where he says, exactly, now I'll restore you and let's get this over with, move off the stage. But it's not. God is going to start with Job all over again. The key to the book of Job is the second divine speech. Alas, I guess we'll have to do the second divine speech next week. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, even with tough parts of your word, I thank you. Father, help us to read and read and reread Job again and be drawn closer to you even when we don't understand you in the process. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.